To ship, of course. Time again for Build Engineering, DevOps, Release Management, and everything in between. Welcome to The Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter, and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. Who else is with me tonight? Uh, this is Yusuf at Build Scientist on Twitter. And this is DJ at Yusermel on Twitter. This is Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter. How is everyone doing tonight? Uh, super. Still Good. on vacation. Checked out. Checked out, yeah. Yep. But you're starting soon, right? You you actually just did a blog post. You're I did. It's cat true. Cat is out of the bag. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm going to Ops Code. Cool. Yay. Yeah. Yay! I'm very excited. I'm not trying, trying not to make a big deal out of it, but I am super excited. <laughs> well, yes. Well, it's, it's an exciting development. Tonight, we're going to tackle the topic of uh, training. Rabble Rouser Sasha Bates actually kicked off the debate at ChefConf, saying that training doesn't really matter and isn't useful. <gasps> and there are there are a couple people present who do training sessions for a living there, so they had some thoughts on that matter, and they'll be joining our panel shortly. But first, of, of course, news and views. Uh, tonight, news and views, we're starting with a uh, link to an article about statically recompiling Nintendo games into native executables. A guy by the name of Andrew Kelly did a really interesting write-up uh, about this, and very just in-depth stuff. I know, Yusuf, you brought up the Prince of Persia teardown a couple episodes ago. This is actually very similar to that. And he basically shows you how to take the old assembler with LLVM and make standalone binaries. Uh, and then he talks a little bit about uh, the problems that he ran into with that. Did you guys uh, peruse this article? Yeah, I skimmed over it. I mean, it's pretty cool. I'm kind of wondering about the legality of I mean, some of this stuff, but... Yeah, so you know what's interesting? Yeah. There's a couple not, of... Not, I, not aren't we, like, outside the statute of limitations for 1970s video games? Oh, no. Copyright never dies. Yeah. Uh, but there are a couple things in here. It's a very detailed write-up, so if you like reading about, like, old-school assembly and Nintendo games having to fit in 32K and what the registers are used for and everything, it's very interesting write-up. Very detailed. There are a couple points in it where he basically says, I'm, I'm leaving this as an exercise to the reader. But there's also some really interesting techniques. He, he, he basically says, <laughs> so he said, after completing this project, I believe that static recompilation does not have a practical application for video game emulation. So in other words, he basically says, he has this huge, long, nice write-up with all these pictures and stuff, and then he's like, yeah, but we, it's not that useful, but it's really interesting. Um, I think the thing I found most interesting about it is the he actually uh, found some problems in his, his emulator that are due to tricks that game developers back in the day used to use because they had so so few resources. So there's actually some like self-modifying code and things in there that it's actually really, really hard to emulate. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Cool stuff. Uh, next up, we have a link to a uh, presentation by Zach Holman of GitHub. He did a presentation, I guess, at Airbnb. We'll link to it and the slides in the show notes. The presentation was called Git and GitHub Secrets, and he goes over a lot of features of both Git and GitHub that may not be obvious or may be just sort of tucked away. Wait, um, Git, GitHub has secrets? <laughs> well, one of the first things they talk about is they have a lot of features that aren't necessarily easily discoverable, or they they don't really publicize. One of the ones he did was like how to do uh, how to change certain things in the links to like GitHub patches that that will like ignore white space and do different things that are just useful. So if you use a lot of GitHub, it's it's an interesting presentation to look at. I really thought you'd be drumming up the whole subversion calls get translated into Git calls on the server call. Yeah. So well, that's one of the features that uh, is kind of awesome. They they actually, and I did not know that, that they actually have an SVN interface that you can actually do SVN checkout github.com slash whatever, and it will uh, it will uh, give you a, a subversion copy, which is kind of amazing. But can you commit stuff back in, or is it just checkout? 
I don't know. I think probably the common stuff is is emulated, but that would be a good thing to try. But yeah, I mean, there's uh, the, there's a link to the video. We'll link to that. But there's also the presentation, uh, which I actually just looked at the presentation and I was like, wow, there's a lot of kind of amazing stuff that for using GitHub as much as we all do. Uh, I didn't know that they had those features tucked away. So definitely take a look, skim the slides very quickly, see what features are hiding that you guys didn't know about. And uh, finally, uh, up this evening, we have a link to something uh, Shanley wrote on microaggression and management. We'll link to it in the show notes. But uh, Shanley's talking about just various kind of methods that managers often may use with their teams that they don't even know that they're doing. Sasha, you linked to this article. I did. I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I started reading it, and then I, I uh, had to come back to it, but I was fascinated by it. EJ and Yusuf, did you see this article? Yeah, I read, I read bits and pieces of it. I'm really, especially at work, I'm really like a hand off kind of guy and there's a lot of stuff that's bi-language related and also early in the article they talk about having your manager like pat you on the back or touch you in any way and mm-hmm. just are really not fond of that kind of stuff. Right, right. Well, it's interesting because she's discussing in the context of how it's all sort of a subconscious way to uh, assert dominance. Assert dominance, yeah. And, and it's funny, I was reading it and I had, I thought of a manager that I had back in the day and he used to do this thing where all of the engineering stuff was up on the second floor and coming up the stairs he would clomp clomp like tromp up the stairs and you it's like the entire engineering staff knew when he was coming it was this very weird sort of like I'm going to be back on the floor and walking around now and I'm letting you know that I'm here a lot of these sort of maybe you call them uh, management anti-patterns or something I I was like oh this person did that so it was kind of interesting to read through and have a different take on not only like sometimes this stuff happens and we don't even directly think about it, but then, you know, this is something we should look at at changing and that it's not sort of acceptable behavior. The, the other one that that really spoke to me is where she talks about dissenters. Derailing uh, gaslighting. Yes, right. that was big for me too. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I, I had a lot of like, th- that was a sort of get on board or if, and if you're dissenting, then you're difficult to work with or aggressive or insubordinate or something. Those are some of the examples from the post right. that she Not a did. team player. Right. You mean yeah. to gaslight somebody. I don't no, I'm not familiar with that term, actually. We have to Google it. Yeah, but it's very interesting. And again, it's one of those things where it's like, I think a lot of times we just sort of assume that, that uh, it's just sort of subconscious. Uh, and I'm really glad that she wrote the post up to... Well, and she, she brings up, too, there's the idea that this, this is especially affects people of color and women because women struggle a lot with the difficult to work with, in, especially in tech and, and male-dominated professions. We already, we already struggle with that a lot. Yeah, well, actually, I really liked how she put it, and I'm trying to find it. She went a little further than that. She said, basically, there we go, that a lot of the techniques are used to sort of set up the power structure if you're not white, male, straight, or masculine. Right. And I, it was, So it's not just women and people of color. It's like if you're not that one thing, then a lot of times, and that actually was my, when I'm thinking about the, person I'm thinking about. It was not just women and people of color. It was if you're not exactly that, then... Yeah, if you're not um, a white straight gonna, guy. Right, I'm going to employ these techniques. I, I, I That was interesting to me. So gaslighting is a form of mental abuse in which false information is presented with the intent of making a victim doubt his or her own memory, perception, and sanity. I'm reading from Wikipedia right now. Yeah. Instances may range from simply denial from the abuser that a previous abusive incidents never occurred, up to staging of bizarre events by the abuser with the intention of disorienting the victim. Like, I think this, like, ties right back into the older thing. If I ever saw somebody 
actively doing something like that, that that would be the cue. That would be cues for me to sort of like get the fuck out, right? Like we had that we had that, that show earlier about when it's time to go. Yeah, that's a good big one. I think that we're all really lucky for the most part that we don't work in environments like that. But I, it's easy to forget because now, I mean, even I I speak from a position of serious privilege when I talk about a lot of this stuff because not only can I choose where I work, I don't have to work in places that are are less than optimal like that. And there are a lot of bad places, a lot of them in corporate, but not always, you know, a lot of them are in smaller companies too, where yeah. where the power dynamic, especially in Silicon Valley and stuff like that, there have been some great articles on that. Yeah, Sasha, I, I, it's funny. I mean, I, I've, I've seen this type of behavior in large organizations, but I've seen it in really small organizations as well. And what uh, I think is interesting about that in small organizations, where it tends that I've seen it play itself out is it's somebody's struggling to increase their power within the organization as it grows. So they do this kind of behavior to make sure that people are falling in line, even if the company's only, you know, 20 people or 30 people, right? They want to make sure that they are the top dog. Somebody's trying really hard to build their fiefdom. I I have seen that, but not so, like, backhandedly. Yeah, I've seen it pretty backhandedly. Most of my experience has not been overt... actual things like that. Most of the time, I just feel really shut down in places where um, I'm not integrating well. Yeah. I mean, that's really what, what happens to me is that I feel very uh, shut down and, and uh, like, my opinions don't matter and yeah. stuff. So, I mean, it's nice to not have the, the worst things, but it still can be very difficult. Well, we may have to, maybe we should uh, re-examine this, actually, for a, an episode because there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And, of course, you know, when you talk about organizational transformation, which we do all the time when we're talking DevOps, it's like you gotta you got to think about this stuff. And so, yeah, be curious. Go, go take a read and uh, see what you think. And we will be back in a moment talking about training here on The Ship Show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So tonight we're tackling the issue of training. As we see a lot of organizations going through DevOps-ish transformations, there is often a component of training related to that. And we wanted to look at, is training even worth it? To help us tackle that question, we have two people who are familiar with the topic. Since they do training for a living, we're joined by uh, Nathan Harvey, whom you probably know from the Food Fight Show, but he's also the technical community manager at OpsCode. And Julian Dunn, who's also a training facilitator at OpsCode. Welcome to The Ship Show, gents. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. It's great to be here. Now, Sasha, this question came up from a conversation that we all kind of started at ChefConf, uh, and you were sort of prodding us saying maybe training isn't worth that much. So why don't we start with that question and what we were talking about there? Well, so um, while I was at ChefConf, I got an email from a guy in New York, and I actually I'm not, I don't remember who it was now, but um, I think actually Nathan or Julian knows him. And he was just looking for some information on chef training, and he thought that since I work with it, I could tell him something. And I can't remember whether it was because Opco was too expensive or too hard to get. I'm guessing it's the second. But he wanted to know if I knew anybody who did training. And I was like, no, because anybody who does chef is, is booked up with work. But I was like, you know what? You guys don't need any training. What you guys need is a room, a quiet room, a project to, with a problem to solve, and the internet. And send them at it for like three days, and they aren't going to need any training. And he was thrilled by that idea, and he did it. And I don't ever think I ever got a report back on how it went. But he he loved that idea, and so then I went back and we started talking about it at ChefCom over beer, as we do. And, <laughs> and bourbon. <laughs> and Nathan was outraged because he was like, you do too need training! <laughs> 
let me ask real quick. You said that they, the the person who emailed you, said they need training. Who, who what, what they, who they were? The, was he referring to his tech team? I don't remember if it was his ops or devs or if it was everybody or if they were a small startup or what. But it was. I think it's a, a not a very big company in New York who okay. needed. Uh, they wanted to get some ops code training because they were at the phase. I need to get a. I don't know what a good name for this phase, but it's the we we love Chef and we we don't know what to do with it, right? So we want to we want Chef, <laughs> right? That that, that that's a, a funny phase. We we love the tool, but we don't know what to do with it. So so uh, Nathan Julian, I'm gonna guess you disagree. Well, I w- I would say that uh, you absolutely need some sort of learning. Now, whether or not that training or learning happens in a classroom that's led by an instructor, I think that that's a completely different question. I think that it it makes sense to step back and talk about the different types of training that you encounter. Some of which are instructor led, and some of which are just self directed, but at a, at a very high level, yeah, you need some training. That That's kind of my initial thought. Yeah, I think, it, you know, I didn't quite know if, if what we're going to be talking about here and this was going to be sort of the, the broad scope of training people to be operations people, and I have my thoughts about that, or whether we're talking about something as focused and specific as a tool like Chef. And, I mean, it is true. You could go out for a tool and you could go out and learn it yourself. And in fact, that's how I learned Chef, right? It was a very steep learning curve, and I went out and I made a lot of mistakes, And but I, you know, I had real problems to solve, whatever, and you can learn it that way. But I think there is value in having very tool-specific training, probably for the reason that, you know, my experience in giving training to folks is that it's actually less about what they can learn by Googling and off the Internet and reading man pages and whatever, but it's about picking the brain of a practitioner that, that has done it before, that has run a real web operation shop, has sort of hit their heads against the walls, and sort of, you know, the value is in having somebody to guide them through the trouble spots in things and sort of explain to them anti-patterns and things to not sort of go down a rabbit hole about, just to get them up to speed much faster, right? But again, it's not to preclude that you could, you know, you wouldn't be able to do that on your own, but I think it just accelerates process. That's sort of my take on it. Well, so Gene, you bring up an interesting point about what kind of training are we talking about with respect to, are we talking about like a specific tool or are we talking about like how do you do operations at scale or how do you structure your development and your ops teams, th- those communication pathways so that, you know, they're functional as opposed to dysfunctional. And those are kind of different types of training, right? I mean, one is very technical and one is actually very cultural. I'm actually curious, uh, when you guys do training sessions, do you end up finding that it's a component of both? That you end up doing some cultural, like, here's how you do this, in addition to, here's how you do this with chefs specifically, but the kind of contextual around, you're going to get more out of this tool if you kind of have certain cultural patterns to go with it? It definitely depends on the audience, I would say. You know, the... A good trainer, I think, is it's kind of like a good reporter, having to read sort of the subject on the other end, the person that you're interviewing or the person that you're teaching step to, and see how receptive they might be to some of those messages, right? There's some training folks that go into a class and they just want to literally know what keys to press, what, how to use this tool, and they're very focused, and that's it. I'm not saying that's bad, you know, good or bad. It depends on the size of the organization. It depends how broadly their job description is, depends how siloed their environment is culturally. You know, I can kind of hint to those things, but that message is not necessarily going to be as well received in sort of a more startup-y or um, sort of more aware environment where folks are they're looking beyond just the, the tool is there to solve a particular thing, but they're sort of looking at it, at it in a broader business context. So yes, I think there's, there, is, there is some of that as well. That, and people do find that very useful, I think. Yeah, and I think the other thing that is pretty interesting is when you talk about a tool like Chef, 
or something that's going to build automation. A large part of being able to successfully use any framework for automation is actually having some trust in that system. And so I think that to a large part, part of what we're trying to instill in students when they come to a, a training class for Chef is that you need to, and you can, trust Chef to do the things that you tell it to do. And so I think that there's certainly some some cultural aspects in terms of trust that get expressed in the classroom. So maybe I want to back up a little bit too and talk about just training in general here because back in the day when I was still doing ops and things, I would go to something like a webosphere training class before I really knew anything about it. And um, I would go in and they would walk me through a bunch of stuff that had no no relation to my real life experience at all. And I didn't know anything about the tool and so I didn't have any questions to ask or really any good understanding of whether or not what they were doing was realistic or anything. And so this is really my thing with when I, you know, the chef training and everything. And, and chef, we, we should really emphasize that we're just, this is just an example. We aren't here to talk about chef specifically. But it's better once you've had a little bit of time to bang on something and then you have some practical understanding of how it lays out at least. And then there is the ability to really better interact with the tool, I think. I would say that, that Sasha, to, your, to that point, I agree with you. The point of the training is to give folks that kind of safe environment to actually bang on things in the class. And there's a lot of folks that come in. You would be surprised, right? A lot of folks come in, and they're not expecting it to be interactive. They're expecting, like you say, to be lectured to by WebSphere people or whatever it is for some abstract thing and get a bunch of decks out of two days. And they're surprised, pleasantly surprised, I would say, in many cases, when it's actually, you will now solve these real problems, and you will have a you know, what I call a birdhouse to take home at the end of class, because they're not expecting that at all. And I think giving them that safe environment where they can make those mistakes on something that resembles reality, resembles a real infrastructure, but isn't their real infrastructure where they're going to take things down, is really valuable to them to actually making those mistakes and, and learning the tool, because you, you learn by screwing up, not by doing everything perfectly. Well, so now, I wonder, I don't know if this is too detailed or not, but I happen to know that you guys take people through building an Apache automation collection, right? Yep. For the, for the mm -hmm. basic training, right? But you do that with a Debian style, which is really interesting because I know that a lot of people use Red Hat and are really not open to the idea of Debian style. So do you find that this actually is an impediment? No, I don't. I don't. Even in enterprises, I don't. I mean, I usually have to say, look, we're using Ubuntu systems here. These are some of the commands to make things go on Ubuntu, but this is really just an illustration. I want you to not pay attention to the commands that actually make this stuff happen, but pay attention to, to sort of the building blocks of the concepts of how you start up a service, how you manage a config file, that sort of thing. And, and it also leads into, and maybe this is a very chef-specific thing, but it's like learning those building blocks is generally applicable across a whole variety of operating systems, including Windows. So it also lets me lead into that by being able to say, don't worry about the fact that this is Ubuntu. These are the types of primitives and the syntax that you're going to use no matter what your infrastructure is. Yeah, and like Julian said, I mean, it really comes down to those primitives, and that's what we're trying to get across with folks. And we certainly, as we teach them how to get Apache installed and serve up a home page, which is one of the first exercises that we do, or the first Apache cookbook that we build, we do it in a way that you would never, ever, ever manage your website. But at the same time, it, it exposes you to some of those fundamental things, so like packages or services and, and templates or managing files that you can then, in turn, take and apply to any scenario that you maybe need to automate within your infrastructure. The other really nice thing, I, I think, about using something that's very simple and, and 
very simplistic, like this Apache cookbook that we use, is that it speaks both to people that come with an operations background and really understand, you know, what does it mean to have a service, and those that come from a development background that maybe are used to, like, building an application but aren't really used to how does that application actually get deployed. So, Sasha, you you were saying that you can get, I guess, derive the same value from just getting in a room and reading, you know, reading whatever documentation, and that worked for this particular environment that you had the question about. Do you know anything about, like, the size of that environment? Because I'm wondering if, you know, you were pointing out that startups might have a different perspective on this than, for instance, you know, a big Fortune 100 company or something right. like that. I think it was a pretty small team. It might have just been his ops team, and it might have just been a few folks. So I, I honestly don't remember, but I think it was pretty small, relatively speaking. So do you, I mean, so does that mean that, that, like, would you say that there is some kind of bar there? And, and I actually, I'd be curious what Nathan and Julian, you think, like, do you, I mean, when you end up, what, what are generally the sizes of classes that you teach? No, I think that as someone who's, I spent years on an enterprise team, I think that people on those teams need even more incentive to get away in a room and, and bang on stuff without interruption because they get it worse in some ways, I think. What, what are the generally the sizes you guys see when you're doing these... these I mean, because I'm assuming it's not like they they don't... Someone doesn't fly you out for, like, here, train two people, right? I mean... No, our typical class size will be anywhere from, say, 12 to 15 people. Okay. And, you know, we, of course offer a couple of different types of classes. Again, I don't want to get too chef-specific, but there is a big difference between, say, a public training course that's open to anyone versus a training course where we're on-site at a particular client because obviously that changes the mix of the students that are in the room and then also sort of the, the skill level can be varied in a classroom across both of those different audiences. But the motivation level can also be much, much different when we go on-site to a customer versus a public class where, you know, your company had to sponsor you to go to that class or you're paying for it out of your own pocket. Right, right, right. Well, so I actually wanted to bring that up because, Sasha, you were talking about sort of training classes and you mentioned kind of WebSphere. And I remember thinking initially when we were talking about this over beers that it sounded to me like you were sort of anti-training because you had a bad training experience and then I remember Julian you and I were talking about the fact that like you know as a trainer like how do you tackle or or address people in a particular class that are just like they don't want to be there and they're just like hating their life and and it's it's so obvious that that they're that they don't want to be there that you can just kind of they exude that and how you deal with that so I'm actually curious, Sasha, is, am I reading that right? I mean, did you have a, a super bad training experience? And then I'm actually curious. Well, so, I mean, really, have I ever had a good training experience? I mean, yeah, once. I went to a Red Hat training class that was super. I mean, the guy would get into our, our, our PCs that we were working on and break them. And then <laughs> and stuff. And that was probably the best thing I've ever done. Otherwise, I just came home from training classes with giant doorstops and a waste of my time. So I was never hostile to being in a training class. I used to beg to go until I realized that I wasn't learning crap at them, and they were just kind of a waste of time. And that, I mean, the one I went to Colorado and took my bike with me, that was the best one as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> for the um, vacation part or for what you learned? Yeah, I don't even remember what the training was for that particular one. But, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was. I just have never found that getting training on something that I don't know anything about is useful to me until I know something about it. 
Okay, so that so that, that that's perfect. So to that point, and I remember Julian and you and I were talking about the about exactly that use case where it's like somebody somewhere in the company made a decision. Hey, we're going to trade everybody on this tool, which we've actually talked about. One of the big problems when you pick any tool, whatever, no matter what it is, is that if you're going to have, for instance, everyone in your ops team and everyone on the development side actually use the same tool, and somebody has to be responsible for picking it. I mean, there's a whole like kind of cultural thing about that process. But assuming that the decision has been made, what challenges do you find when you go into that environment where you might have someone like uh, Sasha's experience where, you know, it's unclear that everybody has bought into this decision, but you there, you're there and you're doing the training and you're trying to make it uh, a good experience for everyone. Like, wh- what kind of hurdles do you personally run into? To how do you try to solve that problem? Well, I try not to get too involved in those politics. I mean, obviously, you can detect as to who really wants to be there and who's just sort of being sent and whatever. But what I try to do is, I think, trying to relate to, and everybody has pain points, but trying to relate to what their pain points are. And literally, just at a break or whatever, like, tell me about your infrastructure. Just to have to have the instructors show interest in what they're doing and in what problems they're trying to solve and, you know, whether the problems are technical, political, business, whatever it is. And then right. trying to sort of figure out a way to relate to them so that they can relate to you as a trainer and tying that back to what you're doing. And then just kind of bringing a really positive energy to it and be like, I don't know if this tool is going to be 100%. It's not going to be 100% panacea for you. You know, you may end up implementing it wrong or whatever it is, or there might be factors beyond your control that are preventing you from succeeding, whatever. But I'm here because I want to be here because I think this is a great tool and I think it not only improves your technical pain points, but also your business processes and your culture. And just trying to have that rub off a little bit on folks and having that passion that infectious passion for the tool and for the environment definitely goes a long way. They may not buy into it in terms of, you know, they may still go away and think that the whole workflow and the culture is crap, but at least they're not going to be openly hostile. They'll still at least walk with you for that kind of three days. That's that sort of, you know, what I try to do. I love your description of that because it's, you know, as a consultant, uh, I run into that a lot and I always describe it as like 25% of your job is being a therapist and it's like, well, tell me how you feel about logging into 200 servers to change this one setting, right? So, you know, it sounds like it, it, you, a large part of being an effective trainer is actually listening as much as you're talking. Yeah, I would say that, in fact, a part of being a consultant in general is listening. You're right. I would say it's probably more than 25% of one's job is doing that kind of listening, like being their psych- psychiatrist. And their diplomat, too, right? Like, <laughs> right. not being... Not, not totally being upfront and, and being like, this is exactly what I think, right? It's just like most of the time, it's just like taking in information and using your political capital in small pieces to kind of influence the change that you want. And the same thing applies for the, this isn't a discussion about consulting, but, you know, that again, taking that kind of a, a metaphor and way of doing things and applying that to training and kind of using the political capital you have as an external party to try and push them in the right direction instead of being like, you should just, you know, drink the DevOps Kool-Aid and blah, 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 right, right go off. Just listen to me and this will solve all of your problems. And I think Actually, I mean, and I, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm trying to think back my career, like when I've had training and whether or not I thought it was effective or not. And I have a couple of instances that I remember. And I, I, it's funny because I sort of understand what you're saying, Sasha, where I've, I've ha- certainly had training where it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're wasting days to talk about this. But it's when we were talking about it over beers, I, I was certainly on the side of I think training is important because one of the things I have run into a lot of times when you try to do self-directed training is I, I remember sitting down and actually when you know I was looking at Chef and, and that kind of stuff and, and you know it started with okay these are arrays and these are lists and it was like no no I've been programming I get that but then it's like you look at a cookbook and you're like I have no clue what's going on and actually having sort of directed training allows the person to customize the, the message to you know if you 
yeah, I'm, and I'm sure you've run into this, Nathan, Julian, if you're talking to a room full of engineers that have operational experience and it really it becomes about the tool because you're not trying to sell them on the culture because they all get it, you can actually derive more value out of that because a lot of the documentation that you might see online might start at a very either baby steps, you know, uh, bunny slope level or flip a few chapters ahead in the book and then it suddenly you're like building, what is it, LWRPs? <laughs> and so there's, it's hard to find when you're by yourself where the line should be, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think one has to be, you know, very cognizant. You have to constantly take the temperature of the class, even in, not literally, but, you know, like in the, sort of in the back of your head, just sort of, you know, understanding the group that you're with. And, and if, as you say, if you have folks that are already kind of bought into this, the, the culture and the workflow and whatever, or working closely with dev, if they're ops or whatever, then we can often get into to, okay, well, let's talk about your actual situation and here's how we would approach your problem. Or give me give me a hard problem to solve. Give me a thing that you're struggling with. What would you do once you leave this class to actually use this tool? And just talk through the high order things of like how we're going to do this. For example, I was at it recently, a Fortune 100 company. You actually be surprised. There's a lot of Fortune 100 companies that are very advanced in this sort of in this stuff. And they already have a billing portal to provision VMs. And you enter your cost center and you get a VM with your chef recipes plugged into it. And that's the infrastructure group and what I was training was an application group that were like how are we going to like what's the workflow for collaborating with what this other group has in Git and how are we going to work out sharing code and responsibility and all that stuff and you know how do we plug that stuff in so that's a really unique case that so we can start getting into that because they've already really bought into the whole the kind of universe of the, the thinking about it so you know working a real use case with them and then kind of wish we had going to getting more of a sort of capstone in a training context an actual project that, that is a thing that's relatable to what they're actually building in their own infrastructure is really valuable. Quick question for you, uh, Julian, because I'm curious. Have you ever done a training situation where, and the example you just gave where the ops team is is on board and they're doing their thing, but then in an apps team context, you find that they may not be, the team as a whole may not be proficient with Git because maybe they're organizing, you know, maybe they're using something else. Do you end up going off on, t- on tangents about uh, like Git or some other aspect of training? Vaguely. It, again, it depends, right? I try not to focus too much. I mean, I'm there to teach them Chef, and that's already enough of a very specific technology thing. When I talk about Git, I'm talking about it, in the, again, in the context of what, you know, what's the broader thing that I'm trying to talk about. And the broader thing I'm trying to talk about is if it's infrastructure as code, you should try to treat your code like you would, you know, your application developers, developers would treat their code, right? So you should revision control in some way, and whether that's using Git or using SVN or using some other thing, you know, God, I hope case. Yeah, ClearCase, SCCS, or any of the other revision control systems that I endorsed you for on LinkedIn. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, thanks for they're, that. By they're the way. coming clean, Paul. Yeah. Uh, you know, the point is that you should revision control that stuff, and you should probably tag it and have you know have good practices around that. Let's not worry about whether you're using Mercurial or Git or whatever it is. Those right. kinds of things are probably beyond your control, or are beyond are, are not really germane to the conversation at hand. You know. I definitely don't actually teach them any version control in, say, the public training classes, which is mostly what I do, because just as Julian mentioned, we're there to learn about the chef primitives. That's the big thing. I always include a lecture about you should absolutely be using version control. In fact, if you're not, you might want to spend the next two days boning up on what version control is and, and how it works instead of paying attention to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but given that, definitely just focus on really the skill building and the primitives that come with the framework. That's really where we try to focus our training. You have, uh, Seth, changed roles recently a little bit. Didn't you say you're starting to do more like technical sales type uh, stuff? Well, no. Uh, well, technically, I've been doing like pre-sales type of stuff. And okay. 
like you know technical evangelism type of type of work uh, as of late. So there's been a lot of I've done some on-site training as well. I uh, I mean I've seen I've seen it from all sides. I've also been on like inside an enterprise and been in training situations where like hey you need to train on this particular piece of software and it's really just like a a class where you learn things and do like a multiple choice exam and you learn absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, so let me ask, and the reason I ask is because if you, I remember we were talking about it recently when, when you were in Europe, the type of work you were doing. And in, I mean, it sounds like you're doing some amount of training in a kind of pre-salesy context. Oh, definitely. Um, that's, uh, it depends. I mean, sometimes we go into customers and they're already very familiar with, with, with what they're going to be doing. And then other times it's, you know, the first few days are just education. Um, so just going over some of the basics. But I've, I've done both the very in-depth and then also kind of the advanced level. With most of the training that I've done, it's already been people who are using our product. So there's at least a little bit of a, a heads up. And then you mentioned like training where you do useless training where you do a multiple choice exercise at the end. What made that experience useless, did you think? Uh, there were, well, these were at large institutions, so like universities or some like large, you know, just corporations where the training was just kind of, here we've got training, somebody should do it, but not very not terribly useful, and it didn't really get you anything. You know, like uh, they would do, like trying to teach like programming concepts through multiple choice learning examples. That's not exactly <laughs> going to would going you, to do well. Would you use a for loop here, or a do while loop, or a while? Loop? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't the best. So I've seen. I've seen that as well. Um, I prefer. I much prefer the hands on. But you know, typical like problem solving. If you don't have a problem to solve, it's going to be really difficult. So I always make sure to have some kind of very specific problem set that I, you know, at least I've done before and already know the answer to, uh, <laughs> to get people started. Well, so th this is a good question that we had on the list to kind of discuss certifications, right? I mean, you're, you're sort of talking about that. Sasha, you were asking originally about training. Do you think certifications are useful in any context? 99.99% of the time, no. My problem, let me, let me actually just, instead of saying that and being all smug about it, here's my problem with certification. Generally, it requires you to know minute, meaningless details about product goals instead of useful implementation. So, and it might actually encourage you to know how to do something with all of the default settings, but not not teach you how to do anything. Once you like, once you wander off the path of the default, you don't know anything. And so, it teaches you a lot of. It encourages you to learn a lot of useless things, and doesn't really teach you how to use something well. So I might have to memorize the 10 different default ports that come with WebSphere, and I can tell you to this day, I can't ever remember which what they are. And I don't care, because that's why we have the internet. Right. Do you guys, is there any certification with the training you do? Do you get a little certificate and a gold star? So I would say that we get requests for certification on a pretty regular basis, but we do not have a certification program in place. At the end of our courses, you may get a certificate of having completed the course. So yeah, you get you, a hug. Yeah, you definitely get a hug, and you get <laughs> you get a certificate of awesome that you can post on your cube wall, and oftentimes that's, that's good enough. I think that from a philosophical standpoint, as we think about certification on the CHEF framework specifically, I think that right now, number one, it's moving a little bit too quickly. And number two, the investment that would be made in order to set up a certification program that was meaningful is not something that we are dedicating resources to at the moment. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I was thinking about certification sort of in the, the industry-wide context because it seems to me in the last... 
I don't know, what would you guys say, maybe seven to ten years, there's been sort of a realization that it's unclear whether or not certifications mean anything. Because I've worked I've worked with, you know, Red Hat certified people and and other not to pick on Red Hat, other certifications. And and they actually advertise that as part of, you know, whatever. And I was not impressed with the work they did. So so in other words, a certification doesn't automatically translate. So I don't know if that's a an industry thing that's sort of shifted in terms of they just don't mean what they used to. I think enterprise managers still place a lot of importance on certifications, which is too bad because I haven't had any trouble telling them that I think they're they're worthless for years. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because I was thinking about the the Cisco certification process, and that's the, the one certification I can think of right off the top of my head that is still, for the most part, I've always heard people discuss it as being very well respected. But I've also heard horror stories about people getting it, like actually getting the certification after you go through all the, the training. At the end, you take a test, and it's like a day-long test, and if you don't pass the first part, they just say goodbye, and you don't take the second half. So it's actually, I mean, it's not like gold star do a thing and then you get a certificate and it doesn't mean anything and maybe I don't know maybe that's the difference but uh, it is interesting to consider just from a cultural perspective what are you what kind of behaviors are you incentivizing with a certification structure and it's interesting that uh, in the case of chef and, and ops code it's like we need to think more about that before we kind of design you know ops code certified DevOps engineer certificate or something you know God I hope we never we never go well, down that road exactly right but it, yeah. it needs sparkles on it if you get <laughs> yeah. Let, let me ask one last question, and, and Sasha, you actually did a, a post about this recently about types of training, and, and I think you were talking about in the context of if you are doing self-directed training, screencasts versus text tutorials. We'll actually link to your blog post because you were talking about context, but uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that and bring it up because you discussed it as well, and it's interesting to me in your post that you were complaining about self-directed training even though you were sort of advocating for it. What made me mad about screencasts is that when I was trying to learn Keynote as I wrote a presentation is that every time I went and Googled how do I do X with Keynote, I came on these like 15 minute screencasts and I'm like, dude, one paragraph is all I need, you know? Um, and what, that's what really gets me mad is that I think that people conflate the idea of a screencast with easier learning when there are a lot of people out there who can just read something a lot faster than, than you can talk. And um, unless until I get like 3x speed on my, on my video viewer, this sort of thing is not useful. And so but it kind of turned into a larger discussion about what is useful for people and how do people have different learning styles and things. And, and I think that learning styles is a topic that we could stand to spend a little bit of time on because that's really one of the things that Julian has convinced me of in another beer conversation we had is that just because I can do a bang up job Googling crap on the internet and, and filtering it doesn't mean that everybody is built like that. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's, there's, well, thank you. Sasha, I convinced you something. That's one of the funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always noticed that there's two kind of different learning styles for a lot of folks. Like a lot of people are visual learners, a lot of people are are auditory learners, and then some people are self-directed. And maybe I don't know what category that falls into. But I think there's a lot of what we talked the certificate. As I was sitting here listening to the certification talk and stuff like that, and you know, I think people don't really realize that if you're going to have a good learning program, whatever that is, whether that be screencasts, whether that be written text for teaching people how to do something, or whether that be training material, I think folks out when they're trying to learn something kind of underestimate the amount of effort it actually goes into developing good materials. And so oh, I kind of think that yeah. the fact that some folks just put up 
screencast of here's how you do X in Keynote is kind of to me just laziness without actually actually assessing or thinking themselves about whether or not that's an effective way to communicate how to create animations in Keynote or whatever. They're just like, I know how to operate ScreenFlow, so I'm going to push the button and I'm going to make that go as opposed to is it actually the best way of communicating that information. And so I think a lot of the, you know, the feedback that Nathan, for example, gets about why doesn't Opscode have a certification program yet? You know, there's a we need to really unpack that. It's not a really trivial answer, right? And and when Nathan's alluding to there's a lot of work that would have to be done to make that actually viable and effective. There's a lot of, you know, it really speaks out a whole ecosystem of not just issuing certificates, but making it useful, making it meaningful, the whole training materials and the curricula and everything. That's the point that I wanted to make. Julian, one of the interesting things that you know that you brought up about the effort that it takes to make those materials. I mean, in a lot of cases, and I think I think uh, Ops Code and most training programs fall into this category where you do have somebody who's doing curriculum development, but then you have a number of people that are actually presenting it. And I'm sure there's a feedback loop about getting changes in there. But as someone who's led training and done both the curriculum development and then done the actual presentation of the training, I think that's often if you're sitting in the audience, often underestimated about how hard that stuff is and creating training scenarios where, for instance, people can have that aha moment. Like you actually kind of put people down a path where they might run into a problem that everybody runs into and then you can kind of solve it together. I've had this, I was doing Git training. And so it's easy, you know, in in that training, like people who use Git and think they understand Git, like having them trip up with a complex merge or something like that where they kind of have, again, the, oh, I, I now get why I'm sitting here. Like engineering that sort of training path, if you will, can actually be really, really difficult. And you can tell when you're sitting in training if somebody's really thought long and hard and, you know, kind of engineered those learning experiences in the context of the training itself. Because you're right, if you have people that are just getting up and saying, well, here's how you do this in Keynote, and here's how you do, you know, uh, this and what, whatever, it, it is easy to see how people would fall asleep or thinking. Here's how you those. set up a JVM config in WebSphere. Right. That's great. I can read the instructions on how to do that. Why don't you break it and help me fix it? Right, right. You know, but, and in order to do something like that, you actually either have to know something about the tool or something about similar tools, in which case, you know, I, I don't know. This is why I, I find that paying $4,000 for a week of training with something like this is, is less than useful for me. Well, so that, that's interesting. It's a it's a good note for the last question I wanted to ask Julian and Nathan. I mean, because it sounds like it can be really dependent on the attitude that you go into training with and also the energy that the trainer brings into the experience. So I wanted to ask both of you, what would be your advice for someone who feels that maybe training is less than worth it? You know, if they're going into a training experience like, what advice would you give them to sort of get over that hump and, and at least give it a chance? Yeah, that's a tough question to answer. I think in a lot of cases I walk into rooms where they've already kind of written written it off, and it's my job to try and win them over, you know, within the first half day kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, I agree. You know, I've been on the other side of the fence too, right? I've been in Sasha's shoes where, again, and it, the only training that I've been to that I thought was extremely worthwhile was Red Hat Enterprise Linux System Administrator or whatever they're calling it these days because it was practical and hands-on. But I've been to a lot of training where it's a fellow that comes out and his job is to be basically a PowerPoint slide reader. He knows right. nothing about the technology. So, you know, I try to bring those experiences from what I have felt that trainers have done poorly or organizations maybe that have set up training have done poorly and try to rectify those as early as I can. In terms of the, you know, advice to to attendees, I would say don't, don't just blindly go on training. I mean, if you, have, you everybody has a day job to do, right? Why are you going to waste a week if it's going to, if you know it's going to be terrible? And I'm hoping that as the training ecosystem system develops, I'm hoping that the certification isn't the only barometer of whether or not training is good to go to. 
I'm hoping that right now it's just word of mouth that well, I hope folks are saying this, but you know, I hope folks are saying obstacle training is worth going to and that people can ask around if they're being sent on it or if they're considering it. They can ask around and, and get advice about whether or not it's good. And I hope, hope the same goes for other types of technologies and things like that. People will ask around and do their diligence and their managers would do their diligence before sending people on something that's useless. Well, and so really, are there people out there who have to go to training against their will? Because I've, I have not encountered that. So, I mean, yep. when I, once I decided that training was not worth my time, I stopped going to training. Nope. There are, there are, I have had training sessions where it's like the management has sold up the chain that the entire engineering org build QA, everyone will go to, for instance, agile training. And it's not optional. It's like well, the, the business sorry, is not up. And, and, and Nathan, but um, that's why God made the internet and my telephone. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, Julian, that you say said you had to, or you feel it's your responsibility to sort of sell them in the first half a day. Because I'll tell you that the training that sticks out in my mind as having been sort of the best experience, the first half day was basically selling the entire, and this was agile training, the first half day was selling the organization on why you would do things in an agile way by actually look like, you know, the, the trainer played devil's advocate. And I was like, let's do waterfall. And then we went through this exercise that kind of seemed stupid at the beginning about, well, let's prove that waterfall is bad. But actually, it set up the rest of the training for why you should be at least listening and curious about it. And and again, that goes back to training materials. That's really hard. It's it was I was actually chatting with a friend about this. It's like trolling your audience, and that's a very fine line to walk and still have it work. Well, and to a certain extent, you guys know that I'm playing devil's advocate too, right? Because for well, first of all, I love chef, and I probably would go to any chef training that uh, sat still long enough for me to go to it, just because I think it would be fun, especially because I think there are some great advanced topics in things that I think would be fun to discuss with people who have done advanced work. And that actually holds true now for several things. Like, I would go to get training now because, um, like we've discussed in the past, all I can do is fetch and pull and, and branch. And anything that breaks usually results in me deleting my working copy, you know. So I would, I would, there are things that I would go to training on. But again, these are all things that I know about already. I wouldn't go to training on, I can't think of anything right now that I don't know about that I want to know about. <laughs> I mean, well, even like unit testing, because if you know me, if you've known me for five minutes this summer, you know that unit testing is my big thing now that I'm working on. And I know a bunch about it now, but I don't think it would have helped me to do much besides flail. If I'd gone to a class that tried to teach me how to write unit tests, it would have just been a flailing mess because I don't understand enough about what I don't know to actually get anything useful out of the class. I still find that interesting that, you know, I, and I don't know people that teach a like, test-driven development course. I'm sure there are some. I'm wondering if it's because you're approaching it from the perspective of you've been doing independent consulting for a long time. And I've and as someone who's been doing it for a while now too, I've run into the same problem uh, where it's like a training experience with 15 people in a classroom that's sort of guided is very different than uh, trying to find someone to do. And and you sort of did training with Fletcher, didn't you? Yes, and so that's actually. But I've also been working on this now on my own for quite a while, and I've read through half of the RSpec book and and things. And yeah. the what the big thing that I've discovered now that we're completely digressing onto this is that learning something out of the book. So I've been reading the RSpec book, learning something from an example where they already know the answer on how to refactor and write tests is not even close to real life when you have no idea what test you're going to write for what code you need to make. I mean, it's nothing like reality to, be able to well, read that in the book and see them go, oh, and now you would do this. I think honestly, one of the things that we talk about in the chef training is exactly that. And 
the thing that we say at the beginning of the, every class is the best way to learn Chef, number one, is by using it, but number two is to bring to this classroom your experiences managing infrastructure. I don't know, frankly, I don't care what your infrastructure looks like. I know it's a beautiful snowflake and it's really important to you, and Chef can help you model and automate that, but you need to bring that understanding with you to this classroom or to this training or this learning exercise or whatever it is, and we're going to show you the primitives and sort of help you build up on top of that. Now, if you've never done infrastructure management before or if you've never done unit testing before, certainly the the stuff that you're going to get out of the examples out of the book is going to be less than less than successful or less than helpful for you. It's certainly better to come at it with something that you've experienced Maybe you've already done some work and have some understanding of what it is you're trying to accomplish. And I think that that's really where training can and learning in general can really start to help. Because I think you definitely learn through experience and you have to go and play with this stuff. And back to your question earlier, Paul, about you know what advice would I give to students to make sure they get the most out of it. It's understand what's in it for you. Come to the class ready to learn and come with an open mind. Because maybe you're, maybe it was your manager who said, hey, by the way, you're going to this training class and it's going to be three days and that's what you're doing next week. Take advantage of that time to embrace this new technology that you're learning about and sort of try to understand those baseline skills, that baseline understanding, and go from there. One other thing that I would add on to all of that is that while I find training uh, structured training to be less than useful for me, something that is really helpful are technical conferences. And I'm not just saying that because they're fun to go to and my friends are there. But because if you go to, say, ChefConf, or if you go to Velocity, or if you go to Surge, or even so IBM Impact now, it used to be WebSphere or whatever, these places have technical talks by people who use the product and often uh, are talking about things that they have encountered and and what they have done to deal with them. And so what I find there is that even if you don't know a lot about the tool itself yet, that sort of everyday anecdotal storytelling really helps get you comfortable with how people are using it and understanding things. So I, I really would like to say that technical conferences are a great way to learn about things. You would almost consider that part of the training budget, it sounds like? Most likely people... do. Where I, where I used to work, it was you get one conference or one training a year. Mm. Well, so it's it's funny uh, to me, Sasha, you, you said that was a digression, but it's hearing Julie and Nathan talk about it, it sounds like you did some prepping for your you know unit tests and test-driven development, and that was what made it useful. I'm reminded of, we had this really horrible math book in high school, and they always used the phrase, like, proving this theorem is left to the, the, the student, and it would often derail the class because you'd be doing your homework and we you just get would you get lost trying to prove the theorem and where the value was was coming back the next day and having solving that together as a as a class and so it sounds though uh, like you did your own prep work in that and that's what made the training useful so it's it's interesting here here you say Julian that one of your recommendations is having people look at the tool at a very high level and and try to it's it's funny it sounds like it's a combination of what Sasha was saying where it's like do some self directed stuff so that you can you can go, show up to the class, quote unquote, with you know some questions or something specific that you want to get out of it, and that you can actually engage in a conversation with the trainer. Definitely, and I would say you know 
I'm teaching the chef, I'm teaching a particular tool, but what I want folks to get out of it is the different way of thinking about modeling your infrastructure and writing programs to automate it. You know, five years from now, who the heck knows? Chef might not be around. I damn well hope it's around, but you know, it might not be around. It might be something else. A new hotness might take over. But I hope that some of the concepts that we're learning about infrastructure as code and those things are applicable no matter what technology you choose. And those are kind of the, the things that I hope eventually come across. And even if that's not what they get to on day three they're like I learned chef maybe on day five maybe you know on day 14 they'll be like there's a different way of thinking and it's a different way of reducing the pain and the drudgery of, of being a system administrator or developer or whatever their day job is right uh, Sasha have we convinced you training is it necessary did we convince you that it's necessary I think it's a nuanced discussion really and <laughs> um, you can't convince me that I need training on tools that I don't know anything about well, well so, so Sasha you've modeled infrastructure with chef have you ever been to a formal training session on chef yeah so i i would agree that it's not necessary is it helpful in most situations i would ha have a strong argument that absolutely it is helpful i think so i'm not saying that it's not useful i'm saying that trying to teach me chef before i had spent a couple of months banging on it would have been less useful for me at least especially back when i learned it which was just that eight-ish Right. Well, I think that's a really good point, Sasha. It is a nuanced conversation, but uh, answering the question training, is it useful slash necessary? That's something we can all fit in a tweet, so uh, we'll open it up to uh, our listeners. What do you guys think? Is, is training necessary or useful or sufficient? Go ahead and tweet us uh, your experiences, good and bad. Yeah, and, and if uh, you we'll... ever had like, a really great training class, let us know about it. Yeah, yeah, and I, it's it's. I think compiling a, a list of really good, and we we talked about I, the the Red Hat one training courses that are really good. That'd be good to know because I think uh, Sasha, you know, I think you're totally right. We've all had the training course that the training itself just wasn't that good. Like the the content and the energy, is, as Julian said, just wasn't there, and so it didn't energize the students either. Um, Nathan and Julian, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, it's been a ton of fun. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll be back in a moment here on the Ship Show. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment this evening, we're doing DevOps Dear Abby again. Uh, we had a bunch of feedback from the last DevOps Dear Abby, and so we're gonna we had enough to do another one, and so uh, we are doing that tonight. Our first item is from at Zespi, um, who actually was responding with some input for the uh, item we had on testing. He pointed us to Extreme Programming Adventures in C Sharp by Ron Jeffries for information on doing unit tests, and then he also linked to the test-driven development video series by at James Shore and growing object-oriented software guided by tests by a couple of people. So we'll put those uh, links in there. And I actually went out and somebody recommended to me the the refactoring book. And okay. I, I poo-pooed it because it was for Java and discovered that they had actually redone it for Ruby. So I have that now and I've read like the introduction. Well, there you go. So, so yeah, there you go. more information on unit testing. So next, Dear Abby comes from Adam who asks the team that he is currently on is changing into a more academic R&D space, so a lot of the stuff that he would be working on, like continuous deployment delivery and best development practices, aren't really going to be applicable to that team anymore. So he asks, 
he recently had a discussion with his direct supervisor in which the supervisor opened the door to the possibility of moving into software development manager position for one of the other dev teams. And he's sort of conflicted about that. And he says, well, I like the possibility of being a person who can help others facilitate their professional development. I worry about what I might be giving up in going down the management path, namely life as a developer. So he wonders if we have any experience with being offered positions in middle management or other supervisory roles and uh, if we chose to go down that route or not and what factors were involved. So, Yusuf. Yeah, I think it um, depends on a number of things. Um, one of the things I would want to mention to Adam is if, if and when you're moving into a management position, you're not really going to be giving up something that's more, your, your problem solving skills are going to be more people solving, so problems related to people. So I, I think you're doing a trade. That's how I kind of think of it. The other thing that I'd look at is uh, whether or not you're going to be getting any kind of management training. If you're new in management, um, which I'm guessing you are, the organization or the company that you work for, whether they're going to be providing you with that management training. And a lot of people might think, well, why do I need training to manage? There's a lot of great courses and organizations out there that talk about how, you know, how to communicate with your team and a lot, a lot of good uh, content out there. And then just, you know, looking at what you, know, what you enjoy most. Do you, do you want to be able to help people grow and work more sort of strategic, higher level things for the company, or are you more interested in still being in the trenches? Uh, I myself, um, just I had my kind of two cents, I'm, I'm still kind of in the phase where I'm more interested in being in the trenches. So, yeah. Okay, EJ? Yeah, I, I've been a manager before, and I'm actually slowly becoming, I'm slowly turning into the role he's talking about now, and Hmm. I, I don't. I don't feel like I've, I'm losing anything at all whatsoever. I have to do a little bit of paperwork, just a tiny bit of paperwork, and maybe that's sort of a key aspect. If you're finding you're you're pushing papers, then maybe your team is sort of weak, and maybe you should look at that again. But if you know if you have really good people on your team and on your staff, then it shouldn't it shouldn't be that hard. You're, you're really not losing anything. I don't think. Sasha. Being in charge is hard. I prefer to, to stop at tech lead for the most part, and I have never really had any interest in helping other people develop their careers. My career is hard enough as it is. <laughs> so, I mean, tech lead is as far as I'd go. Uh, so I don't really have, I don't think, any really good advice for him. Okay. So, yeah, I have been a manager before, uh, although, ironically, it was mostly a title. And so I guess what I would say, the biggest change that I noticed when I was in that position is that the kind of content of the conversations changes. What I think is interesting is that managers, I mean good ones, worry about all the things that, that you would worry about as a developer. I mean, they want their teams to be uh, you know, they want to hire good people and if, if you've ever worked with a, a peer that you didn't particularly think they were competent or whatever, I mean that's something we all worry about whether or not we're managers or in the trenches. We all want to work with good people. So I, I think largely you are going to be worrying about the same things but you're going to be kind of interfacing at a different level with the organization because you'll sort of be responsible for for that. Um, I know Yusuf and I, we've talked a lot about having to, to manage people and how that can be a little stressful. Uh, I, I would echo his comments on training. Uh, it's funny, Yusuf, when you were talking, I was thinking about you don't want to be gaslighting people <laughs> since we just talked about that earlier in the show. And so it does it does take a little bit of training to figure that out. I want to throw in one more one more thing here. Um, if you're on the fence or contemplating it, Paul, when you were a manager, did you ever have to fire anybody? No. Did you ever have to put somebody on like a performance review plan? Nope. So these are some of the questions you have to ask yourself. Can you look at yourself in the mirror and go, I I won't feel bad. I will not lose sleep at night if I have to fire a, a staff member or two staff members or my mm -hmm. half my team. And not just because, it, it, yeah, well, for multiple reasons, right? If there's like a staff reduction or they're not pulling their weight or whatever, right? I, are you willing to do that? And if you can't, then 
for sure. Maybe take it to Tech Lead and ride that for a while and then come back and revisit yeah, it. Yeah. I can tell you one thing. This doesn't sound like the situation you're going to be in, but the one bit of advice I can give you, I have been in this situation. It's the worst situation that, uh, that I probably have ever been in where I was Tech Lead and I was responsible for the team and its output and how it interfaced with the rest of the organization. But the other people on my team did not report to me. And that was the worst situation that I've ever been in because I was held responsible for the output of the team and project management, but I had effectively no control over the people who had to deliver to me. That's uh, called senior that, whipping boy. Yep, and that was a real mistake on, I think, the person managing that situation. But if you ever, you know, and, and so I don't know uh, if this applies to you at all, Adam, but don't let yourself get put in that position if, you know, either you're the manager of the team and you have reports and that, that whole line of responsibility is the same thing or not. But don't let the organization fragment things like that because that's just going to result in severe badness for you. So our last uh, DevOps Dear Abby tonight is from Mike Fiedler, who asked, he was responding to actually uh, something we tweeted from the last episode. We were quoting Sandy. She said, there's not a very good translation from the academic body of work down to the boots on the ground. And Mike Fiedler asks, so why is that? And can, should we change that? Sasha? Um, I just think it's because they're in academia and not on the ground. They're in the cloud. Not the, <laughs> not the cloud. They're in the actual clouds. They have their head in the clouds where they can write about ideal situations and things just pretty much conform to what they think should happen. Can, should we change that? I don't know. I mean, it would depend on whether the academics want to come play, right? Mm. Uh, I think it would be a tough integration, but um, maybe not because... So the only people that I have met that, uh, that come close to IT nerds for interpersonal troubles are academics. <laughs> so that's, that's really where I'm going with that is I don't know if we should change it or not, but I think it would be a tough integration. Okay. Uh, EJ? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Does this just mean that people view people in academia as disconnected from the real world with regard to engineering practices? I'm confused as to... But I'll tell you, if that's the case, and if my interpretation is wrong, Paul, you can just edit me right onto the floor. Uh, we just hired a bunch of interns, both... We had, we had a guy from high school as an intern at Rapid7, and some of these guys were demanding things like code coverage, and I, I was just really blown away. I didn't even know about unit testing when I was in high school, you know, but that we used abacuses, so it's a little bit different. <laughs> Yusuf? Yeah, I, I think, um, great question. I think the distinction needs to be made between academics that are focused purely on computer science and those that are focused on software engineering or both. I have had the, the fortune of knowing both. Um, so I've known academics who are in more CSE and others who are more software engineering. And I will say that the ones that are more geared towards software engineering kind of have to do a dance between the very heavy theory academic stuff and then the boots on the ground type stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, so I I actually think Sandy was talking about it, uh, you know, in translation from academia to boots on the ground. And I think actually part of the issue, I, I've seen a couple of uh, situations where academics and people from industry are interacting together. So the release engineering workshop uh, that I went to that we covered a couple episodes ago, that was exactly what that was. It was a bunch of people from academia uh, there presenting and then a bunch of people from industry. I've also seen in certain organizations where you've got somebody who is wanting to use technology that, that had been pioneered by an academic and take the work uh, and, and actually put it into a shipping product. And that situation did not go very well. I think the main reason that it didn't is... Well, I guess the point I want to make is that I don't think it's just the academics that, that uh, you know, it's not just a quote-unquote academic problem. I know of a lot of developers 
that think that the work that academics do is worthless and not like applicable to their lives. And so there's a little bit of a, you know, everybody needs to be a little more sort of empathetic and, and showing respect of the hard stuff that both sides, uh, academics and people in the trenches, have to go through. I would say, though, the the reason that I saw those interactions kind of miss the mark a little bit or, or sometimes become frustrating was because if you've got uh, somebody who's working on their PhD thesis and they've been doing optimizing compilers for eight years and they're just trying to get their work wrapped up so they can publish, and somebody comes along and says, hey, I want to integrate this into a shipping product, but we don't have, I mean, this product has to ship in six months. There's a huge requirements disconnect. The goal of academia is to publish something at the end of the day and increase knowledge on the subject. And the goal of most people trying to ship software is to ship software. And those can often be different. I mean, those are different goals, right? And so sometimes that's where you, you get a little bit of um, friction. Can, should we change that? I, again, I think the Release Engineering Workshop was trying to change that. I think there need to be more forums like that where you've got academics coming together with people in industry and chatting uh, about that in, in sort of a useful way. Because I know one of the questions they were asking at the workshop was like, a lot of the academics were asking, like, what should we be studying? But I think that's what makes it hard is, is industry changes so quickly that sometimes it's hard for somebody who's trying to work on a seven-year or four-year PhD or whatever you know, they're still going to be studying, you know, COBOL or something when we've all moved on or Java when we've all sort of moved on to whatever is next. So uh, we'll do DevOps Dear Abby again. Uh, we have a couple in the queue. Uh, and again, we haven't forgotten about yours, Brian. We'll get back to it one of these shows. So, yeah. We're also starting to take a look at whether or not it would be useful to have transcripts of the ship show. Uh, we got a couple tweets about that, and then we ended up talking with some other people that have podcasts about whether or not they do transcripts and would they be useful. So if you have any feedback on that, whether or not you think they would be useful if you would use transcripts, let us know at Ship Show Podcast. Uh, we were actually laughing the last episode. I, apparently, people like to listen to us while they are mowing their lawn and gardening. So I don't know that transcripts would be useful in that context, but if you would find a transcript useful, let us know. We'll see about putting that together. So from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From Minneapolis, this is Sasha Bates signing off. From Boston, Massachusetts, this is EJ Sermelo signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah.